See, you're the kind of person that I think might not wipe his ass fully. Like, I did it once, I'm good. And then you're just, because you just do shit. You just do it. Like, I poofed, I wiped, I'm done. And then, like, you find new underwear every week. That's... Uh, you know, I, and I, I, How's the food? in my own defense, yeah. I'm pretty sure, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do two wipes. I do the paper both times, you know, so, and I check. But, but did you say both sides? Well, no, I use, it's like both times. Like, all right, here's one wad wipe, and then you look. We have to move on from this. Okay. I'm, I'm Don Hall. And I'm David Himmel. And this is the Literate Apecast. uses bad words. If you don't like bad words, maybe send and listen to it. <laughs> Start off, Literate, we have Literate Press, and we've been doing this for uh, like almost seven years now. And one of the things that uh, is always kind of, uh, it's a question that kind of pops up in general, is why in the hell would you self-publish? What's the point of why self-publish as opposed to get like an actual legitimate publisher and have street cred? So David, what's the answer to that question? Punk rock. Yeah! (laughs) There's, my thinking is this, that you know, there's all these great bands that they don't wait to be discovered by Columbia Records or Virgin or whatever. They put their shit out, they scrounge some money, they find a recording studio, and they release their own shit. And then as things go, maybe then they get discovered by the, the big, you know, they sell out to Geffen Records or whatever. And that's, selling out isn't bad. It's not like it was in the 80s and 90s where selling out was a horrible thing. Green Day did it right. So I think that it's, it's a matter of, you know, you could spend years writing it and then years trying to sell the thing to an agent, to a publisher, and there's nothing wrong with that, like do the hard work, but that is the hardest part about writing a book is getting the thing sold. So if you self-publish, you get it out there in the world, you can get some readers, you can go to a publisher later and say, look at all the people that have been buying the book, I've got the ability to write the thing, I can do this, I can market it, and they'll go, yeah, okay, let's, let's make some money off the work that this person has already done. It's opportunity without having to sit and wait for your shit to get out there. Yeah, I have a little bit different answer. I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, it really occurred to me about the self-publishing is uh, a couple years ago, uh, maybe longer now, um, I interviewed Henry Rollins uh, for a WBEZ podcast at the Metro. And before um, we got on stage and actually had the interview, I got to spend you know, basically about 90 minutes just hanging out with Henry Rollins, which given that he's one of my heroes, that was pretty fucking cool. And one of the things I asked him when we were talking, we talked about his love of coffee and a whole bunch of other stuff. But one of the things I asked, I said, dude, you started your own like actual publishing house years ago so that you could publish your own work. I said, if Amazon like direct publishing had existed then, would you have still started your own printing press? And he said, fuck no. He said, do you know how much work it is to publish? It's like how much money and energy, and it's always a loss of money. It's always a pain in the ass. If Amazon had been there, I'd totally done that. And that made me think. Second thing was when I wrote both of these books, in fact, and some other books, I, I did the thing. 
I did the thing you're supposed to query letters and looking for a literary agent and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that kept hitting me that I kept getting back was I didn't have a robust enough social media presence for them to consider publishing my book. That's and I another thought, thing too is well, like, I thought, wait a minute, if you publish the book, isn't it your job to market it? But apparently that is not the case. It's not, not anymore. And so I went, all right, well, if I got to do that anyway, I'd rather just publish the fucking book. If, and anybody in this room, and I think everybody knows me, if anybody knows me for five minutes, you know there isn't anything I have ever done in my entire life for the money. And so I don't give a shit about that. I just want to write the books and I want to put them out there. I don't want to waste my energy because the energy that I would spend trying to market a book takes up from the time of writing the next one. And so I guess that's, and I don't know if anybody reads Seth Godin, he's a big marketing guru, but Seth Godin also is like, dude, you can wait for people to pick you or you can just pick yourself and do it. Second question, the wife, you, okay, hope idiotic. This took you a really long time to write. Tell us a little bit about Hope Idiotic so well, people it know. It didn't take me that long to write. It took me a long time to publish. No, it, dude. No, I wrote it, this thing in a week. Oh, really? So I did not know in that. In 2012, I went up to a cabin in the southwestern Michigan woods uh, with our friend Jared Keane. Yeah. And for just like a writer's sweatshop, the two of us sat down for a week across this long wooden table and hopped up on Adderall, coffee, and bologna sandwiches and just wrote. And we went fucking crazy. Like when you get into the, when you get in your head and you're writing this book, like you, you can't sleep, you're, it's also the Adderall. All yeah, that the, would help. All the Adderall. The methamphetamine. <clears throat> um, but yeah, we, I, I wrote this book in a week's time, all the way through. It was exhausting. It was crazy. Like we're, by the end of the week, we were screaming at the walls. We're just in our heads. It was, it was bizarre. Um, the following year we went back and I edited the whole thing. So I guess, oh, two weeks. All right. Sure. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and say two weeks. Why and not? then I just, I just put it away because I, I don't, I don't know why. And then it was just like, cause I was over it. You know, like you tell the story and you get over it and it's like, yeah, move on to the next thing. That's just how I felt about the story. Not that it isn't good. I think it's a good story, but I was over it because I had spent so much time with it. And then it was like, I've got this thing that why not put it out there? So I put it on Littered Ape episodically. I was like, okay, that's good. I was like, nah, let's just get it done, done, done. So let's publish this thing, put it on the bookshelf. So, so what was the impetus? Cause I actually know the answer to this question. What was the impetus to publish it now? I, I don't know. Because I called you and said, I want to do a book event in Chicago. Oh yeah, that was it. And, uh, <laughs> and I've got two books. Yeah, and it. originally that was what was so, what I thought was kind of lovely. I, 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 I loved it. It kind of <laughs> made, cause I, he and I've been talking about this for like the last two years, but when are you going to fucking get off your ass and finally publish this book? He's like, oh, eventually I'm so busy. I got, oh, and then finally I said, yeah, I want to come to Chicago. I need an excuse to come to Chicago. I want to do this book event. I think it's fun. I've got two books and here's what I want to do. And then the next day he said, I think I can get Hope Idiotic done in time, which he didn't, but he came close. I, I got real close. Came real close. Got and real I close. think that, you know, it's like sometimes you just need a little, 
a little kick in the right direction. I mean, publishing a book is hard, whether it's, yeah. you know, selling it to an actual publisher. And even then, like, the work that goes into that, the production that goes into that can take months, years. Um, or if you're doing it yourself, it can take months, years. Unless you're really me. intense weeks, unless you're done. We just, and then I just fucking shit. crank them out. They're not good, but they, they, they're fast. So, it's, you know, that's a plus. Don, see, you're the kind of person that I think might not wipe his ass fully. Like, I did it once, I'm good. And then you're just, because you just do shit. You just do it. Like, I pooped, I wiped, I'm done. And then, like, you find new underwear every week. That's. I, you know, I, and I, I, How's the food? in my own defense, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do two wipes. I do the paper both times, you know, so, and I check. But, but did you say both sides? Well, no, I use, it's like both times. Like, all right, here's one wad wipe, and then you look. We have to move on from this. Okay. I'm sorry. Like, you, you started this shit. I'm just, just going there. I, yes. You opened the door. I'm more dead. All right, let's, let's talk about... about it. <laughs> Done. It will be available on Amazon next week. So let's talk about the casino book. All right, sure. Uh, this Briefly. is, this is a, a memoir. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's a memoir, but it's really not, I, I guess what I would say is what I intended it to be was a memoir about the people I encountered rather than a memoir about myself because I found myself in a really, I did not intend on being an operations manager at a casino at all. I went to Vegas thinking I was gonna work in events and what I discovered very quickly is an events representative here in Chicago is someone who works an event. And an events representative in Las Vegas is the guy who spins the fucking sign on the corner. And I went, ah, what is going on? So the only job I could get was as an operations manager at a casino. And it was the shittiest casino in all of Las Vegas. Which and the best. It was like a dive bar. It was like a dive bar casinos, the Wild Wild West Gambling Hall and Hotel. It was just, it was terrible. And in fact, in the book, when I first got there to, to interview, I was like, am I fucking really going in here? Holy shit. But I found that I loved it. And I found that I most importantly really loved the people because they were not the tourists that came from Iowa or Oregon. They were not the, they were, these were locals. They were, these were people that did not want to gamble in Caesar's Palace or Luxor. They wanted to go someplace they could call home. And there was something, I loved them. I learned to they love. They wanted cheers. They yeah. wanted to go where somebody knows their name and they I could love maybe these walk people. out 20 bucks richer. And consequently, that was kind of what I wrote. I wanted so to write about this, the people. How much of this book actually happened versus how much is Fictionalized. All of it happened. Verbatim? I mean, I mean, it's verbatim. Well, I mean, it's close to verbatim. So, so let's say 92% is completely true. I mean, every instance in that book really happened to me because I was writing the book as it was happening to me. Something crazy would happen. There's a whole chapter in there called, Help, I Can't Shit. Now, I will tell you that that chapter did not happen in the sequential order because it's basically an entire chapter of shit that happened crazy stuff, nutty, what the hell just happened stuff that happened centered around the men's room at the Wild Wild West. It did not all happen in one day, but the way I wrote it was, here's this happened, here this happened, here's this, th here's the guy that's just walking around with a doll and nobody knows what to 
do about it because it's fucking creepy. And so as my as the operations manager, it's my job to figure out what the fuck. And so there's a lot of stuff. So yes, not all of it is in sequential order, but every single thing that's in that book absolutely happened. But you changed the names to protect the guilty. I did. It's very funny. If you look at his book, I thought this, this cracked me up so hard because I was helping him format it. His disclaimer, you know, you always have a disclaimer page, like just like, uh, no innocent victims, whatever. Um, his is a page long. His is a page long of just covering his ass. I have one line and my line is the names have been changed to protect the guilty. That's it. That's the one disclaimer I gave, and uh, and it worked out just fine. Because so have you had anybody react to the book? It's like uh, that's not my name, but that's me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you yeah. read the book, there's a there's a character in there named Diana, and I called her Lady Die. Well, her name is Donna, and I called her Donna Madonna, so it's not that different. Well, she read the book. She bought the book, read the book, fucking loved her character. She loved her character. I've had two of the, the managers call me and say, fucking, it's like I was there again. And I love the fact that you reminded me that you called me the civil, silver fox. Because Buzz, he's Boz in the book, but Buzz was this older guy who couldn't figure out a computer, but he had a fucking hair, head of hair that was silver, and the older lady patrons just melted for him. <laughs> Sorry. And so he was really happy that he was called the Silver Fox. I, you know, his name was Boz. His name was uh, well, I don't in mind. real life. His in real name, real his real name is Glenn Bezgoyan, and he was known as Buzz. And, and you changed his name to, in the book to Boz, which is short for Bozrah. Okay. Hey, so here's they here's were changed, but they were radically changed. Come on. This is an important lesson about creativity and writing. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to try. No, you really don't. You just gotta sit on your toilet with your double white side toilet paper and fucking shitty mail it out. Just mail it in. Just Here, like, well, okay. There's a reason for it. Number his one, his name wasn't David. It was David. 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 Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If, if I hadn't explained that, no one in this room would know his name was Buzz. Nobody. So it wouldn't make any difference. Number two, when he reads it, and he did, he knew instantly who he was. So I mentioned Boz at any point in the book. He knows I'm talking about him. And I did write the book as much for them as anybody else. You know, it's like that's part of the fun was I wanted the people that were there I mean, the general manager. In the book, his name is Jackson. In real life, his name is Jeffrey. He loved, he emailed me and said, God damn it, I wish my name were really Jackson. It was real simple, but it was fun. And so yeah, I wrote it for them to read and I wanted to read it. Maybe nobody else reads it but them, but that was kind of part of my fun. All right. Do you have a question for me? I do. Um, we divvied up some questions. All right. So, yeah, this is Hope Idiotic is a work of fiction. It is. Yeah. Wink, wink. No, it is. It's. But it is clearly. It is obviously based on your personal experience. So my question is, why did you choose to fictionalize your experience rather than make it sort of a weird memoir like I did? I spent. I, I was felt that in writing, uh, coming up with names is the hardest part for me. 
because like, is this character, is this character a Brian? Is this character a Jennifer? Nah, she's not a Jennifer. I, maybe she's more of a Cindy. Ah, fuck, I don't. And is it Cindy with a Y or Cindy with an I and a heart? To I don't. This is the shit that I that I go through. I spent probably a full day <laughs> thinking about names for the characters. Here's who this character is. All right, so these are the qualities of that character. These are the values of that character. All right, let's go find names. God, I overdid it. Like. <laughs> is, you know, one of the main characters is, is Lou, Lewis. So what does Lewis mean? And I don't remember now, but like, oh yeah, that aligns with uh, what this character is. Like I went deep and weird and connected everything. I spent so much time, time trying to figure it out. And I also made sure. You know, I thought I Right? <laughs> I mean, you probably do. John, I don't know if you guys heard, but John said, I thought I overthought, which is overthinking to even think that. Um, the hell was I talking about? I oh, and I made sure, your names, about your fetish sure on names. that the names were not, it, it wasn't David and Maven. You know, like I, I made a point to do that because I wanted to disguise things a little bit because it was fictionalized. And the reason I did that is because I didn't want to, I wanted to challenge myself a little bit and take and try and just recreate the story. Like it was based in these actual experiences. I mean, you'll read the book if you guys know me at all, like there are, like it's obvious who's who, but it, it, it allowed me to just it, expand things, shrink things, expand things again, connect things where they weren't connected to just tell a better story. Yeah. Um, it's a good book. I, 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 yeah, I give him shit. It's, it's a really, I, I found it very entertaining. To give a better I read it line. twice. And, you know, I think there's also a level of... Um, You can, you know, part of being a writer is you, you create the world that you want. One of my therapists told me once, she said, stop trying to write the truth. You're trying to recast everything. Don't do that. And that's what writing is, is we can take what we've experienced and turn it into something else entirely. So a lot of Hope Idiotic didn't happen, but it also did. Let me rephrase that. A lot of what happened in Hope Idiotic didn't happen, but it also did. As much as it didn't. So it's sort of like the character in Mystery Bin that just does the weird epitaphs, the Sphinx. It's, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds profound. I, I mean, you read the book. Like, uh, yeah. did I have a best friend who died? Yes. Spoiler alert. I did. Uh, there's a lot of truth in but this book. How did he die? How did we get there? How did yeah. all these things happen? The that emotions there in this moments, book are absolutely. There's moments of reality that were inspired that led to other things. So it's it's true as much as it's not true. Yeah, yeah. No, like I said, I, 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 reading that book, I know I knew him better. When I read it the first time, I went, I think I understand you better than I did before I read the book. And I liked that. That was something that I appreciated about the book, about the writing of the book. And it's interesting because in the middle of the, so I, uh, I didn't marry a prostitute, the centerpiece of that book is 16 really short pieces of fiction. So why that? Why take and, this memoir? And, and, and the thing about it is those, I didn't originally write that book for any other reason that I didn't know what else to fucking do. I mean, I literally didn't know what to do with myself. Quick show of hands, does anybody know what 
so I didn't marry a prostitute is what inspired most that? people do yeah you guys yeah. all know okay yeah sorry. i mean yeah it's it's that it's Sounds it's like wife was a whore no <laughs> literally not like, she and i don't know if she still is so i don't know that but what i'm saying at the time she had worked as a prostitute i did not know about it it was a shock uh, i didn't know how to handle it one of the reasons i wrote the fiction and i didn't write the rest of it until after um but i wrote the fiction because once we'd kind of gotten through all that um, we agreed we weren't going to tell our families, you know, I basically it was like she, she, I, I felt like I couldn't tell her parents, right? It, like why we were getting divorced. And she was living with me still because I, instead of being like a dick and saying, get the fuck out of the house, I was like, well, all right, so I guess we'll coexist until you find an apartment. I will acknowledge, I didn't know what the fuck I was thinking. I, I was completely... I, out of body, but so we were coexisting in an apartment at the time I was working from home. So we were there the whole time and I didn't know how to process what was going on. So ultimately I decided to write, I sat down and one of the pieces will be read tonight is, uh, I can't remember the name of it right off about the candle wax. I just like, I want to write a piece of fiction that explains to me that just that is honestly, this is how it feels in my situation without outing her, without saying this, without, I want to put it on a litter tape. I want to write a piece that says, this is how it feels to be me right now. I don't know how to deal with these emotions. So I'm going to write this. And then the first one felt really good. So I wrote another one. And then I wrote another one. And I just kept writing them because she was still there. And then... And, and pretty much the 16 pieces were written in the two weeks she was still in the apartment with me. And then she moved out about 25 feet away, which was weird. And, but I didn't have a need to write the fiction anymore. And so for a while I tried to sell that. I, I did, at first I didn't want to sell it. I was just like, okay, I don't know what else to do. And then I started writing things about how it was to be me and what the fuck am I gonna do with my life? And I don't know anything anymore. Everything I thought was real is not. So what does someone do with that? And that's really, you know, the essence of the book is that. And it was interesting because I didn't plan on publishing the book necessarily. But I ended up getting two emails and phone calls from guys that I went to high school with. And I had not thought of in 30 or 40 years. And both of them had found on Literate Ape some of the stories. And they both didn't even like know each other. I mean, they knew each other, they graduated together, but I'm sure they were not like buddies, but they both were reading them. They were going through a really terrible divorce themselves. And they both told me that they really appreciated because either one or the other story that they read really felt, they knew how I felt because they were feeling it. And I went, well, Given that I am a child of multiple divorces and now I have three of my own, I'm practically a fucking PhD in divorce. <laughs> so I'm not going to write a self-help book, but if this is something that's remotely interesting, and some of the reviews on Amazon have actually reflected that. People that are reading it, they're like, dude, I thought my life was bad because my wife was unfaithful. Holy shit. Those are the kind of reviews I'm getting. It's like, okay, if that's a purpose for the book. It made it, and I can also say that once I published it, 
I stopped being mad. That was the crazy thing. Because I was pretty, I mean, I was sad and I was disillusioned. I was really fucking angry. And if you know me well enough, you know how angry it can be. But once I hit publish and the book was out there and I got my author copy, I, there was no more reason to be mad. It, was like, it wasn't a revenge piece. It was just like, I, okay. You put it on the shelf. That story That's... is now complete. And it was really kind of cool. And so it was a quite, you know, I don't know. I don't go to, I don't have a therapist because I'm an asshole. But that was the closest thing to therapy I could think of that I did. Yeah. You want to read some? Sure. All right. We have got, first of all, I want to, we have got three readers that are going to join us. David's going to be reading from Hope Idiotic. And the three readers uh, that I've asked are going to be reading from either of my two books. Um, we're not going to tell you which books they're reading from because it should be pretty, if, if, unless we're idiots, it should be pretty obvious which book is being read. Cool? All right, so let me welcome M.T. Gazzola. <laughs> Joe James. And Heather Bodie will be here shortly. She's on her way, and she will read as well. So um, enjoy the, the reading. Cool. A building is only a building. What makes it a hangout, a destination, is what and who are inside it. Every casino is the same physical space. No windows, no clocks, the feng shui of confusion with ranks of slot machines, blackjack tables, carpet with labyrinthian design, cocktail waitresses with trays of drinks and plastic cups, the constant promise of a quick buck and a timeless oasis of ups and downs, hope and despair. Some are palaces, others are dumps, all offer something subversive, and underneath the smell of smoke, whiskey, and oddly manufactured air deodorizer, a whiff of possibility. What sets one casino from another is the people who decide that this place is the place, their place. Visiting Las Vegas, Nevada is not the same as living in Las Vegas, Nevada. Those who come as tourists see what Vegas wants it to see. The neon, the glamour, the legacy of a more glorious and brutal past. The centerpiece of the city is the Strip. And its sole purpose is to get tourists to part with their carefully saved vacation cash and maybe some of that college tuition and mortgage payment, thank you very much, from films and televisions, books, and the overwhelming successful marketing campaigns. Vegas is a weird Shangri-La chock full of crazy things to see and experience all with the selling hope that you may be a big winner, but almost, almost never are. Living in Vegas is a different beast entirely. The public schools are among the nation's worst. The transit system is crap, and the politics of the place are exponentially more crooked and cutthroat than cities five times their size. It rains twice a year, and then the ill-equipped roads can't seem to handle water of any amount. The sun has an almost otherworldly quality as it bears down on your car, causing the steering wheel to be so molten your fingers sear. And driving around the city is like accidentally waltzing into a NASCAR track. Who in their right mind would decide to live in Las Vegas? 
I'd wager I'm the only person on the planet and perhaps in the history of humanity who can claim to have been a professional trumpet player who then became a Chicago public school teacher, then started a nonprofit theater company, moved to a decade-long gig as a public radio director, and then spent a year and a half managing a Las Vegas off-strip casino. It isn't a distinction bound to win me any handcase or rewards, but it is unique. Sometimes on a planet with over 7 billion humans, unique is the best to hope for, and so I'll take it. The road is life, wrote Jack Kerouac, uh, a phrase I love so much that I had it permanently inked on my right forearm. If that's so, my life is a road with no practical navigation to it, whatever, whatsoever. It was just enough that James T. Kirk, let's do the thing. Lunacy, finding a rhyme or reason behind my trajectory beyond impulse and a belief that the best answer to why is why the fuck not is fruitless. Which is why, after spending 30 years in Chicago, Illinois, and providing the dark, proving the dark night theory that you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, I decided to toss away the precarious safety of familiarity, exit the comfortable bubble of ideological conformity, and move to the desert. No job in mind, no hefty savings, no plan. My third ex-wife, the ex part of that is a whole different story, but sadly pretty common one in Vegas, and I were married in Vegas, so Nevada it was. We weren't the types to spend much time reflecting on the rear view mirror. The path to regret is second guessing choices already made. Vegas changed that. The path through the desert became filled with regrets and questioning choices made. The year and a half at the wild, wild west gambling hall and hotel, the casino at the end of the world, is not among those regrets. My first discovery about Las Vegas was that all of my 30 years in Chicago, all of the experience and industry I'd built up over that time meant next to nothing in terms of gainful employment. My hubris was that I thought I could swing into this city of neon and be welcomed as a designated pro from Dover. I was painfully mistaken. After a few months of looking for something that recognized my hard-earned skills and several weeks with no more than $1.42 in my depleted bank account, I began looking for anything that I could trade time for money. The second aspect of the place that I was unprepared for was the far more diverse population of Nevada. Like a brick to the side of my head, suddenly con confronted with people who were hardcore Republicans who loved Bernie Sanders and died in the wool lefties with visible sidearms. The inability to pigeonhole the routine encounter shocked my sensibilities. The people here were like on any group I had ever been around. Third was a sense of unearned nostalgia for the city. I had only known from the movies and a state I'd always just seen south of Utah. Absent any investment of time, I felt completely at home and was hungry to understand this place like no other in my experience. The questions presented were why I felt such connection, and was there a place for me here? Las Vegas did have a place for me, but it wasn't anything like I imagined. A building, just a building, but the wild, wild west was something so much more, so much seedier and alive than the tried and true dazzle of this circus in the desert that it felt like the place, my place. I have an issue. 
I trust Jason. He's the best. But I put $100 on the Raiders, and he fucked it up. I should have won, but he didn't take the right bet. I'm sorry. Once you walk away with the ticket, that's your bet. We can't void it now and allow you to change it after the game. That's bullshit, man. I need that money. Should have bet it because it was for my cable bill, but it was a sure bet, and Jason didn't write it down right. It's his fault, not mine. You ever go to a drive-thru at McDonald's? What? Yeah. They give you your order, you drive home, get inside, and discover that instead of the double quarter pounder with cheese, they gave you filet of fish. Uh, I don't get this. If you drive back and ask for your actual order, they're not going to refund your money or give you a different order because you went home and didn't check it in the drive-thru, right? The receipt they gave you was for a fish sandwich. You have a fish sandwich. And it doesn't matter that practically no one likes those fish sandwiches. It's yours now. Oh, I get it. That ticket is your fish sandwich. That's bullshit. I hear you. Maybe you shouldn't gamble if losing is unfair. Yeah, but winning is the point. Yep, you win some, you lose some. Welcome to Vegas. <laughs> Lou's cell phone rang, waking him up at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was Chuck. Come get me, Chuck said. His voice was playful and drunk. Calls like this between my two friends were familiar. Come get you where, said Lou. Come get me? Yeah, where are you? Chuck hung up. Lou laughed as he rolled over to fall back asleep. It was Saturday and he wouldn't get up for another two hours when he would take on the ritual of cleaning his house vacuuming and chemical testing his pool, then get to work on his freelance magazine stories. Because Lou received calls like this from Chuck countless times before, he knew that as long as the guy could make a phone call, he'd be fine. Lou would pick him up later, if he ever found out exactly where Chuck was. Worst case scenario, the cops had him. So he'd certainly be safe for another two hours. The phone rang again. Come get me? Jesus Christ, Chuck, where are you? Yeah. Yeah, what? Come get me? Are you with the police? Gas station. Okay, good, 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 good. Which one? Chuck hung up. Lou rolled over. The phone rang. Lou answered. Which gas station are you at? Yeah. <laughs> A gas station. Do you have your car with you? Come get me? Which gas station? There was a long pause. Lou thought Chuck had hung up again. Boulder Highway and Lake Mead. What the hell are you doing out there? Lou asked this question knowing there wasn't a real answer. These two learned a long time ago not to question the other's motives when drunk or when waking up somewhere strange after being drunk. The explanation didn't matter. What mattered was getting back to civilization, avoiding detainment or violence, 
and retrieving any personal effects along, lost along the way. So he didn't mind when Chuck hung up again, then called right back. Come get me? Yeah, I'm on my way. But it was only a quarter past six, and Lou still had time to sleep. So he did. Chuck's pre-owned black BMW was the only car at the gas station that hadn't yet opened, the only place of service in southern Nevada that wasn't open 24 hours. The car was parked with its gas tank facing away from the pump. When Lou last saw Chuck the night before, he was wearing jeans and a decent button-down shirt. He had his wits about him. But now he was passed out cold in the driver's seat wearing basketball shorts, a torn Beatles t-shirt, and his favorite white Indianapolis Colts baseball cap. A bottle of Miller Lite rested in his lap, the bottle cap in the palm of his open hand on his thigh. If Lou had 10 bucks for every time Chuck passed out in his car, he could have bought his house in cash himself. Las Vegas is a great town, but it encourages drinkers to drive themselves home, or to the next bar, or to an ex-lover's house. Since their days together at Nevada State University, Chuck would pull into his apartment parking space or the driveway of the house he was renting and go to sleep right there in the car. Chuck figured, I'm home, I'm safe, I'm tired, I'll deal with putting myself to bed in the morning. Chuck had locked the car door and Lou was sure he'd never wake him up without being able to get inside. He banged on the window, nothing. He banged harder on the window and yelled until amazingly, Chuck opened his eyes. He lifted his head and looked out of the window at Lou. There they were, two best friends staring at each other through a piece of glass and recognizing the routine absurdity of the situation and the luck the glass was a car window and not a Clark County Detention Center partition. They both laughed, then they laughed harder. I need gas, Chuck said when they pulled themselves together. I don't have my wallet. I really need to know how you ended up here. And your gas tank is on this side, you idiot. Turn the car around. Chuck started the engine, took a long pull from the bottle of beer and said, it's warm. Then handed it to Lou through the window. Lou took a sip and tossed the bottle in the trash can. Chuck had only angled the car about 30 degrees before the engine died. The tank was empty. I'm not pushing your fat ass, Lou said. They switched places and Chuck, who had, more tone, who had more tone muscle than fat and was certainly bigger than the slim and lanky Lou, pushed the beamer around to the other side of the pump. Lou paid for the gas and followed Chuck home. You owe me 46 bucks for gas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tomorrow. Who's next? Joe James. Joe James. Lady Die by Dan Hall. <laughs> Diana is a chairman card holder. For our casino, that's the highest rank with the most free perks. It means that at some point, the player has dropped a couple hundred grand playing slot machines, video poker, table games. Most of our chairmen are nearly bankrupt, but still come in and play for the hope of the next big windfall, for the sense of belonging to an elite part of the casino, for the cheers-like feeling that one is somewhere where they belong and are known. Oh, Don, this might be the last time you see me here. Diana was frequently despondent. 
She was also frequently hyperbolic. Come on, Lady Di, you know you can't resist the call of the machine. No, this is different. My rent check bounced. It's the bank's fault. I paid my rent and then scheduled payments for both my electric and cable. They cashed them first, so my goddamn rent bounced. Motherfuckers. I gotta make some money today or I'm out of my ass, she ranted as she plugged another 20 into the bill validator. Among gamblers, the ones who are regular players are also the most superstitious. You can tell by the way they gamble. Some must have the exact same machine with the exact chair at the exact same time of night. Others wave their hands over the machines after each spin. One guest of ours, uh, one guest of our place requires a pint glass of ginger ale that must be perpetually half full at all times. Another has to exclaim, bam, after every free spin he gets. Diana needed her machine, a 64-ounce Coca-Cola with a straw, and her purse sitting on the machine to her right so no one could gamble next to her. Don, tell me, which machine should I play? This one or the one over there? And she indicated a video poker game two seats away. Go over there. I can feel it. It's going to pay out. I had no clue if it would pay, but for players like Diana, that sort of mystical bullshit is like divine intervention. Gambling is nothing more or less than buying hope. And I figure if I could throw a little sparkle at the hope to liven it up, I'm doing my job. Diana moves over, gingerly puts another 20 in and plays. Four hands later, and she hits $982 win and screams you did it! You were right! My rent is paid! Holy fuck, you saved me! Well, technically my job is to then keep her playing until she loses it all back. I cash her out and tell her to go home, pay her rent, and consider it a successful day. She acquiesces. She's back two hours later, sitting at her machine with her Coke and her purse. Sheila is a 30-something who frequently gambles in the afternoon at my casino. She's funny, gregarious, and focused. She tends to sit in front of a bank of three buffalo slot machines, put money in the two on the ends, and play them all for hours. Almost daily, she complains about how the machines steal her money and that she's never gambling here again. I'll see you tomorrow, is my reply, and I always do. On a typical Wednesday afternoon, I'm in my office going through my sports writer's overtime numbers and the radio goes off. Security to MOD, you're needed for a guest opportunity. Copy that, on my way. As I walk into the casino through the banks of slot machines, I'm confronted by a confrontation. Sheila is hunkered down in front of her buffalo slots, a beer and a shot of tequila in front of her, a cigarette burning in the ashtray. She is both playing and arguing with a white woman, 30-ish, obviously worked up and upset, standing just behind her. The security officer is just off to the side, and it's apparent that he's not getting into it with either of them. What's up? I ask. Sheila launches into a diatribe about this racist white woman trying to take her machines. The white woman overtakes and wants to know the casino policy on playing multiple machines. It turns out, like Sheila, she only plays the buffalo slots. 
And given the small size of our casino, there are only a few of them. Can she play two machines like that? The white woman asks. I know the landmines in this seem to avoid. As a matter of fact, yes, we have a number of regular players who tend to play multiple machines at once. If you'd like to wait at the bar and have a drink, I'll make sure to let you know when Sheila's finished if you'd like, I tell her. Well, I was just wondering, because other small casinos have a policy, a policy against black people, Sheila barks from her perch. This is not a racing. Oh, yes, it is, Karen. Better call the manager. I look down, making sure I'm addressing both women without singling either out by making lots of eye contact. I put both hands up, open-palmed, like I'm entering a cage filled with rabbit hyenas. Okay, let's all be adults right now. Sheila is playing the machines. There is no discussion or negotiation that will change that. We're going to let her play in peace and de-escalate this now. Karen walks away, Sheila starts up again about how the woman cussed her out, about the machines which Karen overheard and then came back, jaw flapping. Are you both in grade school enough, seriously? And I walk Karen to the bar. I comp her a drink. She's more upset than angry and wants me to know that she is not a racist. I tell her it doesn't matter if she is, that her personal baggage is not my business and completely beside the point. I tell her that it seems she is upset because she didn't get what she wanted, which is perfectly in tune with almost everyone in the human species, and she needs to let it go, have a drink, and enjoy her time at the casino. I walk over to Sheila, you doing all right? I'm fine, that white lady was just rude as hell. Did she say anything that made you think her approach was racist? White. She keeps spinning her slots. That's it? She's white? Yeah. That's all you need. <laughs> April 17th, Easter Sunday. We had plans to go out, but I was beat. She gets a call from her friend, a bass player in a local metal band whom she'd hung out with for at least the last five, or at least last past three years. She assures me she has a girl, he has a girlfriend, and they're just music buddies, but something feels strange as she decides to go grab a drink with him. She takes the Prius. I stew for a bit, and then decide I should join them for that drink. I text her. No response. I wait 15 minutes and text her again. Nothing. I do that thing I've never done before because I'm just not that jealous husband type. I check to see where my car is on my iPhone. It is not a bar. It's parked at an apartment complex. I text her the address and ask where she is, immediate response, claiming she snuck into an apartment pool area and was enjoying the hot tub, but was headed home. She walks in, her clothes are bone dry. I'm not buying the story. Are you fucking this guy? She sits, yes. For how long? What does it matter? I want an open relationship. You know that's not how open relationships work, right? 
I mean, you don't just fuck around, get caught, and decide on open status. I'm not, I'm not down for that at all. I'm going to keep seeing him. Then we're getting divorced, I guess. Mutual tears. An agreement to keep the affair private and simply tell people that she wanted an open relationship and I didn't. Irreconcilable differences. The next day, as we're talking through her moving out and the specifics of a quickie no-fault divorce in Vegas, I tell her how surprised I am with her choice to shatter our marriage over this fucking guy. You don't want to know all of it. Of course I do. I mean, what, what could you tell me that's worse than you'd rather divorce me than give up your side piece? If you really want to know, give it your best shot, okay? In February 2020, I was out riding my bike. A guy offered me $100 to have sex with him in his van. I did. I liked it. I've been working as a sex worker ever since. Sex worker? I mean, I know she thinks that makes it sound legit or noble or something, but a hundred bucks in the back of a fucking van? What the fuck? You fucking vans? No, hotels on the Strip. Which ones? All of them. The confession was so huge and unprepared for, my brain went into an immediate freeze. She seemed eager to share more now that the cork had popped, an alternate phone number app, 35 regular clients, no pimp, but a guy on Craigslist who she messages before and after her business to ensure safety. She wears her wedding ring because being married makes the job safer. And yes, she is going to continue this line of work. A week later, we were divorced. A few days after, she moved into an apartment 25 feet from mine. My conundrum is that I genuinely have no issue with prostitution. I'm going to break for just a second from this and tell you that the other day, I got Starbucks coffee in Chicago, and a guy, he was just very friendly, so we were talking. He said, Nevada, what, why'd you leave Nevada? And I said, well, my wife... Uh, decided to become a prostitute, and his response was, well, good for her. <laughs> and I didn't know how to react, so I just, you know, it's just one of those moments, like, what the fuck? I, okay, yeah. So if it were legal, it would be safer. I've said it before, we're all basically prostitutes. Got to make that coin in an environment where young women can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year with an OnlyFans account, actually getting sweaty with strangers isn't that much of a leap. At the casino, the prostitutes who came into the place referred to me as the nice manager because I treated them with respect and kindness. On the other hand, it isn't like she was moonlighting as a secret plumber. And regardless of the fact that prostitution is legal in much of the state, it is illegal in Vegas. It's also incredibly dangerous, and she engaged in all this during a global pandemic. It's, two and, it's the two and a half years of lies that really throw me off. It's the lack of any sense of remorse for the casual destruction of the marriage that I can't quite fathom. It's the rapid decay of my own ability to trust anyone. It's the humiliation of enthusiastically grinding out a living in life with her, blind to the fact that she was intimate with strangers and a boyfriend for years. It's not just infidelity, it's the sheer magnitude of it in this case. I mean, 30 months equals a lot of cocks. 
It's the lies told to me, to my family, to her family, to everyone in our lives for nearly the entire time we've been in Nevada. I can't blame Las Vegas for this circumstance, but I can't stay. I forgive her for it all. I really do, because otherwise I risk becoming brittle, bitter old man. But I can't forget. No ill will, no anger. I, I don't believe she lied out of malice, but out of self-interest. As she said that night, I wanted my cake and eat it too. So I got to head out. I just need to be a, as far away from her as I can. Like I suddenly discovered my soulmate was in fact a giant chunk of highly radioactive plutonium. Got to get some distance or my hair's going to fall out. Never marry a writer. Because, because writers write things about things, and I think I've been incredibly chill about the whole situation. The news is overcrowded with people turning violent against their cheating spouses, so writing about it is the outlier on benign reactions. As I've said before, uh, I'm the best ex-husband you'll ever have. She checked out of the marriage years ago while I'm still coming to grips with it all. I'm still deeply in love with someone who turns out to be a fictional character. There's an absurdity to still loving a wife who hasn't existed since we came to Vegas, but there it is. When I see her now, my brain can't square the fact that she looks like the woman I came here with, with whom I experienced everything in Vegas together, who I laughed and loved for seven and a half years, just isn't that woman at all. Vegas took something from me that I will never get back. Like the guy who comes to this city with high hopes of hitting a jackpot, who ends up bankrupt Monday morning, I'm going home broke and embarrassed. To the people who knew me before Vegas and even Chicago, I really don't know who I am after all of this, who I can trust, what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, I'll figure it out in time. I'll muscle through it, but not here, not 25 feet away from her, seeing her blithely go about her days with no regard for the discarded idiot next door, accidentally catching the sight of her making out with a guy in a pool and feeling like running into traffic because a bus squashing me on Sahara would feel way better than this. The last time I spoke to her for longer than 30 seconds, I was returning her grandfather's huge area rug she happily came into the apartment. Hers was not the behavior of someone who dropped a nuclear warhead on our lives. She started looking around and asking if she could have a lamp and a chair and, of course, the parking sticker for her new car. All smiles and self-interest. Just like Las Vegas, a town that will tell you how amazing you are while picking your pocket. Grizzly by Don Hall. <laughs> Coop woke up in a hospital room. He wasn't entirely certain what had happened. Most was a blank. He could see in his memory flashes, waking up in a bed with a huge waking up in a bed with a huge grizzly bear, being chained to it by his ankle. The bear waking up a mouth full of razor-sharp teeth, screams, pain, now this. 
He was hooked up to a beeping heart monitor and could see with the one uncovered eye an IV connected to his right arm. He looked down and both his legs were bandaged and he couldn't move them. His left arm was gone. The heart monitor started beeping faster and faster. He felt a woozy panic. A nurse, heavy set, black, wearing greenish scrubs, rushed in and put a needle into the IV tube. You calm down now. Didn't expect you to wake up for another few hours, Mr. Blue. Here's something to dull the pain, she said, with a soothing and comforting tone. He almost immediately went to sleep, but not before hearing the angry roar of a feral monster. Like any other morning, Coop woke up hours before his wife. She didn't work any sort of traditional job, so she was used to sleeping in a bit. She called it chinching. Coop was a crack of dawn type. Whether he wanted to or not, he popped conscious around 5 a.m. every morning, made coffee, smoked, did some early morning work, went to the gym, took a shower, all before his wife even opened her eyes. It wasn't that she was lazy, Coop reasoned. She simply didn't fit the normal standard of job. He told her once, as a way to make her feel better, that she didn't suffer bad management, so she had a hard time holding down any sort of steady gig. He was happy to work and foot the bills as she explored possibilities. She mostly found random jobs via Craigslist and then spent much of her time at the pool during pool season or wandering around casinos looking for slot vouchers left behind. He was someone who enjoyed a sense of routine. She was not. They made that difference work, though, so when he slowly stretched into the waking world and heard a beast's heavy, slow breathing next to him, he was shocked into immediate vigilance. His wife was not next to him. Instead, he was chained to a 400-pound grizzly bear by a golden shackle and chain, which was likewise clasped around the leg of the bear. Coop recalled the only experience he could in an inappropriate moment given his immediate peril. In college, his first roommate embarked on a campaign to chase him out of the shared dorm room. Loud music in the morning, his clothes put in bags outside the room, this guy tried everything to get Coop to move to another dorm. Finally, Coop awakened to a German shepherd chained to his bed. The dog was pissed off and Coop was naturally scared, but he calmed the dog down and rechained him to the roommate's bed where it shit and pissed. He didn't know how to calm down a sleeping bear the size of three people combined, but he thought he might be able to escape as long as he didn't wake the creature up. He reached slowly to his ankle. The cup was tight and the lock a serious one. He gently tested the chain, thinking maybe it was weak enough to pull apart. It was not. The grizzly stirred a bit. He froze. After a few minutes, he tried to pry the cuff from his ankles. No dice. He was stuck. He lied there, the beast breathing slowly, and wondered what happened. Where was his wife? Did she do this to him? Why? He thought back to find any clues that might indicate that she'd chained him to a bear. First was how. How did she even get a grizzly bear into their one-bedroom apartment without him hearing, let alone chaining him to it, let alone not be killed herself in the doing? Second was why. 
What did he do to instigate this? Why a bear and not, say, a scorpion or a snake? After lying next to the hulking animal for nearly three hours, he decided to risk calling for help. This, he soon discovered, was a mistake. The bear startled awake, turned its huge mass his way, and in an almost casual manner, attacked him viciously as if he were no more than a salmon. The bear slashed at him with her massive claws and chomped down on his arm. She lifted him up and shook him like a dog shaking a squeak toy. He screamed in pain, in surprise, and in the realization that he was going to die in minutes. His sister sat next to his bed as he woke up again. What happened, he croaked. Coop, brother, was last week the first time you noticed you were married to a grizzly bear? What? That's stupid. I woke up chained to one, but I'm not married to a fucking bear. She was a bear all along, dude. None of us could understand it. For some reason, you thought this wild animal was a person, your wife. She couldn't come inside for Christmas because she was a fucking bear, so you justified it by telling yourself she just loved the outdoors. She liked to camp or some other happy horse shit. Remember when Werner Herzog came out with the documentary Grizzly Man and everyone bought you the DVD? We all thought you would suddenly recognize another man convinced of the humanity of a wild creature like it was a Pixar character or something. The guy gets mauled to death because animals are not humans. They're animals. They exist to eat, fuck, shit, and survive without any human empathy or emotions. Bears don't care about you. They only care about their own survival and will rip anything that threatens that to shreds. Wait, you believe that Gina was a bear? No. You believed she was a human being. She was always a bear. Look. She pulled up her pictures app on her iPhone. There was a picture of him in front of the Chapel of the Bells in Vegas where he and Gina got married. It was a picture of him kissing a hulking brown grizzly. But, wait, that's not real. That's photoshopped or something. She started swiping through pictures that should have been he and Gina in Cancun, Paris, London, St. John, Chicago, but were photos of him with a freaking bear. You really think I photoshopped all of these? Face it. You were blinded by something deep in your brain that had you convinced this bear was a beautiful woman. I'm just thankful you realized the mistake before she just outright killed you. Sure, you're going to be seriously scarred even after plastic surgery, and you'll never get the arm back, but at least you're alive. Coop swiped past hundreds of pictures. No Gina, always a bear, and him looking lovingly at the bear. So you're telling me I'm telling you that Gina was a bear. And for some reason, you woke up two weeks ago and saw what we've all seen since you brought her home, that she is a wild animal. Yes. Where is she now? Animal control came, sedated her, and took her to the zoo. She's been living in apartments with you for the past six years, so she isn't fit for the wild. The zoo. The zoo. Five months and seven surgeries later, Coop found himself at the zoo, staring into the bear habitat. To his eyes, there were four bears in the enclosure and Gina. Gina didn't look like a bear to him, but like his wife, dressed like a teenager in the 90s, 
grinning that crooked grin of hers. Hey, baby. I don't know what to say. They tell me you're a bear, but I can see you're not. They tell me my judgment is highly suspect and that it may be a delusional aspect to my personality, the need to see what I want rather than what it really is. Gina ambled up to Coop, separated by a cage and an artificial moat. She reached into the moat and pulled out a writhing fish and stuffed it into her mouth. Yeah, Coop said. I love you too. <laughs> It was Christmas night in Las Vegas, and the Kaminsky household was full of people, food and booze. Her mother loved to entertain, and having Michelle home always called for a celebration, especially at Christmas time, and even more so with her only child's 30th birthday a few days away. Where most of the parties were friends of Lynn and Barry's, the hosts were more than happy to have Chuck and Gina there too. Gina had skipped Christmas in San Francisco with her family to be with Chuck, who skipped going back to Cayuga. He didn't want to run into Lexi, and he didn't want to deal with his family. Having just learned the truth about his parents selling off their life insurance, and with his mother being so sick, there was just nothing he could find joyous about having Christmas back home. Besides, he couldn't afford the flight. Michelle didn't like the idea of Chuck dating a new girl, and at first didn't want to invite Gina to her family's soiree. But her mother reminded her that it was Christmas, and then everyone was welcome at Christmas. As it was, Gina was a delight. I like her, Michelle whispered to Lou during dinner. She's not Lexi, but I like her. I didn't think I would. Gina even helped Michelle's mom with the dishes. The benefit of being at a Comiskey household party was that Lynn was an amazing cook, and both she and Barry were big drinkers. No one ever went hungry or sober. After dessert, the adults gathered around the dining room table to play a drinking version of apples to apples. Hey, wait a second, Chuck said to Lou and Michelle as they walked toward the dining room. I want to give you your presents now. What are you talking about, Lou said. We talked about this. Money's tight, no presents. Yeah, but it's Christmas, said Chuck. Chuck retrieved a large Macy's shopping bag from next to the couch in the living room. He reached in and pulled out Lou's gift first. It was a pair of vintage highball glasses. Wow, these are sharp. I love them. Thanks, buddy. Lou hugged him. Yeah, I figured the scotch would taste better in cool-looking glasses like those, said Chuck. Here, here, Michelle gets two gifts. The first was a charcoal gray cotton cashmere scarf with layered accents. Oh my God, Chuck, Michelle said. This is incredible. It's so soft. It's for, really, this is an amazing scarf. Perfect for Chicago winters. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. I actually spent more time shopping for you than I did my own girlfriend. Nice, Gina said, nudging him. Well, it's incredible, said Michelle. The second gift was a coffee table book of Las Vegas history and photographs. I know you get homesick sometimes, Chuck said to Michelle. I thought that this might be nice to have in cold and gray Chicago. Michelle became visibly choked up. That was happening a lot lately. Chuck, you're too kind, Lou said. You really shouldn't have. Nah, nah, he replied. Michelle hugged him. 
Thank you, she said. Because Michelle was an only child, her relationship with her parents was a close one. The three of them at times seemed like an exclusive gang, and to be in their presence was a luxury and a privilege. Yes, they were welcoming, but many conversations, even at large gatherings like Christmas, were dominated by their own stories and inside jokes. Lou admitted that he, in fact, felt privileged to be included in their little world. Lynn and Barry referred to him as family, and he felt the same way. He drank expensive scotch with her father. They traveled to Mexico as a foursome. They exchanged Christmas gifts. Sure, they were family. Chuck was doing his best to pace his drinking, but the Kaminskys kept serving him, even forcing him to chug the old beer if a new one was placed in front of him. You don't want to cause a traffic jam, Barry said. Hate to get bottlenecked. <laughs> he erupted in laughter. So did his wife and his daughter. Chuck turned to Lou and quietly said to him, this is strange, amazing, really. Look at how, look at how this family's laughing together. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it, Lou said. Never seen anything like it. Hard to think there are actually families like this. There was some sadness in Chuck's voice when he said that. He missed his parents. He longed for his family to be like the Kaminskys. It broke his heart that they never could be. You're part of it now, Lou said. You're as good as family. Yeah, I like that. Lou patted his friend in the back and squeezed his shoulder to comfort him. They clinked beer bottles together, took a drink, and rejoined the party. The Dumbass Tree by Don Two Whites Hall. Once there was a tree, and he loved a woman. And every day the woman would come and she would gather his leaves and make them into tiaras and play queen of the forest. She would climb up his trunk and swing from his branches and eat apples. And they would play hide and go seek. And when she was tired, she would sleep in his shade. But the woman only sort of loved the tree. The tree didn't know she only sort of loved him. So the tree was happy. And the woman grew bored. And the tree... <laughs> And the tree was often alone. <laughs> then one day the woman came to the tree and the tree said, come lady, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. Why are you being so clingy? The woman taunted. Your leaves are so ordinary and your apples so bland. And I'm so bored with just swinging from your branches. The tree didn't know what to say. So he smiled through his hurt feelings. The next morning, the woman said, don't pay attention to anything I say. I'm a terrible person, aren't I? No, said the tree. You're a wonderful person. I'm just a boring tree. Take some apples to share with your friends. And the woman took the apples and the tree was happy. But the woman stayed away for a long time and the tree was sad. And then one day the woman came back and the tree shook with joy and he said, Come lady, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. 
The tree loved the woman, but even more than the woman, the tree loved the idea of being in love. What the tree didn't know, because trees were long on roots, but fucking short on brains, <laughs> was that woman only loved two things, herself and immediate gratification. You're a perfectly adequate tree, the woman told him but I need my independence and will continue to leave you for stretches at a time and you'll just have to accept it. Because the tree was in love and in love with being in love, he accepted it and the tree was mostly happy. When the woman came by from time to time, the tree always had presents for her to entice her to stay. Sometimes it was one of his branches carved into a figure he thought she'd like. At other times it was apple pie from his apples or a wreath made from his leaves. She rarely had presents for him, but he didn't mind, mostly. One day after a long absence, the woman showed up but had the leaf of another tree on her shoe. <laughs> Whose leaf is that on your shoe, asked the tree. Oh, this leaf? Just a tree I met. You're not jealous, are you? The tree knew jealousy was pointless as he was rooted into the ground, so what's he gonna do? <laughs> Nope, not jealous, I trust you, lady. And he did, without reservation. The tree ripped his remaining branches off to make her a bench for her to relax upon. It left him bare of leaves and no more apples grew, but he so loved the woman and thought she would appreciate the gesture. What's this bench? I didn't ask for this bench. Why would you think I'd want to sit on this bench? The woman took the bench, dismantled it, and sold it for kindling to a local homeowner who had a fire pit. <laughs> and the tree was less happy <laughs> but put on a brave trunk and pretended it didn't hurt his feelings then one day the woman came around with three leaves from for three leaves from the tree she met so long ago what the fuck is going on demanded the tree <laughs> i've been sitting under this other tree for like a year now Will you stop sitting under that tree? No. And the tree was sad. Two days later, the woman sat on the grass next to the tree, who was more like a big branchless pole than a tree by now, and said, I have a confession. I sit under lots of trees when I'm away. Lots? Lots. I'm a horticulturist. <laughs> The tree knew the answer before he asked, but brains were not his strong suit. Will you stop horticulturing? No. I like it. I like a lot of trees. And the woman left for good, and the tree felt like a complete dumbass. When he could open his eyes, all he could see was light. Very powerful and aimed directly into his face, he could hear her moving around, humming something that might be tuneless or, or might be a tune. He was so groggy he couldn't tell. He couldn't feel his body. He was fully immobile. And as he came to, he realized in a moment of panic that he couldn't feel his tongue at all. What the fuck is this asshattery? Are you... Oh. 
Are you waking up, lover? Oh, I'm sorry about your tongue, sweetie. I had to take it. We can't have you talking to people about me, can I? I mean, I'm a, I'm a little sad because even though you were always a blowhard, I'll miss our conversations about things. Oh, hold on a sec. You won't feel this except for a little pressure, but well, this thing was really loud. He heard an electric saw rev up, wind down, rev up, and wind as if cutting through bone and meat. And he felt something, but nothing like pain. I think I doped you up enough for this, but if you start to feel pain, just like nod or something. I, I have plenty more where that came from. Anyway, time for a break. You're probably oh, wondering about a few things. Okay, first, no, I'm not killing you. This was never the plan. Uh, you were supposed to continue to ignore things and chalk them up to my quirkiness. Keep on keeping on, right? But you couldn't. I suppose I became complacent. You were the least suspicious man I'd ever met. I mean, you just trusted so openly, and I hope you know what a truly rare quality that is. So no, uh, not killing you, just, I don't know, hobbling you so you don't go out and tell everyone about my secret identity. <laughs> Oh, I like it. Secret identity, like I'm a superhero or a villain, rather. Ooh, yeah, totally up your alley. I suppose the real question is, how could someone who loves you lie about this secret identity for so long? Eight years. Wow. Well, that's a bit more complicated. When we met, you... I don't know, seemed to fall in love with me almost immediately, I and mean, you were attentive and romantic. I mean, you were just so much nicer to me than anyone I'd ever been with. I gravitate toward darker, more fucked up guys, and you had a job, wore a collared shirt, you weren't an alcoholic or a junkie. You were respectable in your way. <laughs> Okay, confession time. You're the only man I've ever been in relationship with whom I have not killed, dismembered, and stuffed into a barrel of acid. You're special, and I hope you realize that. I mean, you did nothing wrong, honey. I just couldn't love you fully. You said uh, last night that you thought I might be a sociopath, but and maybe so, but I think the Netflix series about me will label me a psychopath. I do believe I had love for you, even if it didn't fit the marriage kind of love. I, at first, I, I loved the idea of you. And then I learned to love you, but uh, not the way you loved me. I never fell for you. There wasn't that... Weak in the knees, swooning feeling. I mean, it was just a lot of affection for the man you were and how much you loved me. I suppose you could say you married your unrequited love, which puts you in rare country, right? He heard her move around, the sound of a chair scraping the concrete floor. It sounded like she lit a cigarette. Sweetie, I'm, I'm going to take this leg upstairs to the tub. I'll be back in a few. She showed him his leg, severe, severed cleanly than me. A lot of blood, but it 
was his left leg, no question. He heard a door open, shut, and her footsteps ascending a flight of stairs. He struggled to move his head. All he could see was a very bright halogen light above him and the edges of what looked like a concrete ceiling. She was never in love with me? What the hell is that all about? In my tongue? My fucking leg? Wait, she killed all of her exes? All of them? Okay, okay, okay. I gotta calm down right now. I have to move my head. Where am I? How do I get out of here? Fuck, she cut out my fucking tongue? If I escape, can they reattach my tongue barrel of acid? He managed to move his head slightly, maybe an inch. He could see the top of a metal folding chair, a metal door, and one of those metal surgical tables with a drain on the end. He heard her coming back. His brain wanted him to run or hide or anything, but just lay here like a hog being butchered. The door opened with a squeal. Missy baby boy? Oh, did you move your head? Wow. The amount of drugs in you, that's impressive, stud. I've always been an impressive lover. I mean, not in the sack, but I never really felt the passion anyway. You know, I read once that the BTK killer in Kansas was married for 20 years, and his wife never figured it out. No records for me. We only made it eight. I think I have him beat in terms of bodies, though, but... Gotta take little wins, right? He vaguely felt her lifting his right leg. I'm not one for wishing, um, but if I were, I wish you'd wised up. You hadn't wised up. I mean, remember when I read your Chinese horoscope? It said you would become suspicious of your partner, and I told you that it cautioned you that those suspicions would be unfounded. Yeah, I lied about that unfounded part. The horoscope was really on the nose. It was warning you, but you never actually read it yourself, and again, you just trusted me, my version. I mean, you trusted me when we first got married and I'd go out late and not text and I wondered if you'd get jealous when I told you I was out meeting new friends in bars or going out to sit in Logan Square with one of my old boyfriends reading poetry, drinking malt liquor, but no, you said that marriage had to be based on mutual trust and you were right. You trusted that I wasn't fucking around and I trusted that you would accept my quirks as they came. For the record, I wasn't fucking around. Although I wouldn't be surprised now if you refused to believe that. Besides having a wife who scours the, the world of toxic men is a lot more exciting than just the typical wife who sleeps around, don't you think? I thought you had caught me a few times. That time I came home with my head shaved. What happened was I, I didn't... I didn't drug the guy quite enough. He fought back, pulled the whole chunk of hair right out of my head. I, I shaved it all off. You remember my excuse? I thought I was paid to be in a fetish video where the guy shaved my head while I was naked in the shower with another naked model, and you completely bought it! <laughs> and then when you found that ratty pair of shorts, oh, covered in blood, and I <laughs> I told you I had a really heavy period. <laughs> oh, it was a real boon. 
Because after that, all I had to say was menstruation, and you just never questioned any blood stain ever again. <laughs> Ooh, hold that thought, using the saw again. And like that, he knew his right leg had been sawed off. Be right back, she said almost as if she were singing a commercial jingle. Scouring the world of toxic men. Jesus, I'm going to die here today. Fuck me. She's just going to keep talking and cutting parts of me off until I'm dead. How did I not see this? Wait, she said hobbling. I want to fucking die. How is she going to explain this? My mom and sister are going to ask questions. I'm not getting out of here, am I? Hey, champ, halfway there. You're doing great, by the way. I'll admit that talking to you without being interrupted is a little slice of heaven. I'm trying to anticipate what's going on in that big man brain of yours, so I hope you'll forgive me if I leave something out. You're probably thinking, I'm crazy. And it's true, as you always like to say, I'm nuttier than a shithouse rat, but you can't say that these days. Believe women, right? Even the ones who use their sexuality to lure awful dudes to their deaths. I have to say, while I have you here, and she pulled on his right arm, lifting it out to some sort of block, that I completely respect that you never considered yourself a feminist. You were empathetic to women, or an exemplary husband, but you understood that any guy who claims to be a feminist is just using the most pathetic road available to get laid. That. That might be why you and I lasted so long. Longest relationship I had before you was three years. And it was just out of high school. It was just out of high school before I started in on my extracurriculars. He was great, ugh, but he was so boring. And then he broke up with me because he thought I was too sexually demanding and he said I used sex as a weapon or as a competition. What a weak ass, right? A man complaining about a woman using sex as a weapon? I mean, the man is the one who stabs her with that D. His dick is a literal weapon. Oh, remember when I snowballed you, sucked your cock, you came in my mouth, I spit it back in your mouth without, um, what is it? Um, consent? I did that to you, you got pissed and complained about it. I did that to my high school boyfriend and he slapped me in the face. And maybe I deserved it, but maybe not. I reminded him of that when I took a scalpel and sliced up his ears and testicles. First time I did it, I felt more alive, more full of feminine empowerment. I wanted to tell the world. That, of course, would have been stupid and destroyed my mom. Um, I thought that maybe the one time was all I needed. Subversive, illicit, scary but sexy. He's buried behind the grove on the <laughs> south side of my father's land. Remember that knoll we had that picnic on when we visited? We ate sandwiches on top of, of my first conquest. I worried about him being discovered for a long, long time. Then I met Gail, and I knew he was next. 
I went to the library, read everything I could get my hands on about taxidermy, some rudimentary surgical techniques, how to break up and dispose of a body. I mean, you'd be amazed how much of that stuff can be found in the public library. She grabbed a hacksaw and started in on his bicep. Gee, she loved her all that time in the gym. He made these arms a challenge. Where was I? Gail, 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 Gail. Yeah, Gail. Gail was already kinky. He wanted to experiment in bondage, but his idea of a bondage was just like hitting me while fucking me. So ugh, he had to go. After that, Mike had to be disposed of after he forgot my birthday and started masturbating to porn while I was right there in the room. After Mike, I expanded into finding random assholes, making them feel seduced, and then drugging them in what? Like Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. <laughs> he could feel his left hand a bit and tried to lift it. Mm, looks like you need a little bit more of that sleepy sauce, huh? Hold on. He was out in seconds. When he woke up, he was upright, he was in a black metal box, a safe. He looked down, his legs were stumps, his arms were stumps, he could see a tube inserted in his stomach. Whoa, what? <laughs> You've been out for days, Oh, I thought I'd lost you. I hope you appreciate that I left you with your genitals. I'm not a complete monster. I hope you agree. <laughs> I may have lied to you about who I was, but when I said, till death do us part, I meant every word. I mean, after all, you were, you were a wonderful husband until you got curious. Now, I have some things to do that may take me out of town for a week. The IV will keep you fed, watered, but I'm going to have to shut and lock this so, so no one discovers you, okay? Love ya. See you in a week. She shut the safe door. He could hear the tumblers turn as she locked it. His mind didn't break and splinter until the fourth day. He died the fifth. Melvin was on the self-righteous warpath. At his and Chuck's morning meeting, he dumped nearly a dozen surprise projects for us with deadlines set at week's end. It was Wednesday. And rather than let Chuck get to work on hitting those deadlines, Melvin dragged him to seven different other meetings that had nothing to do with anything Chuck had on his plate. Is there any reason I have to be in these? He asked Melvin. I would like for you to get an understanding of what, for what happens at a higher level within the organization. What Chuck already knew and could now confirm was that jack shit happened at a higher level within the organization. The next day, Chuck hunkered down in his office and burned through as much of the work as he could. By the afternoon, he was confident that he might get everything done by tomorrow. He would have worked later into the night, but his brain was mush, and there was an alumni event at the university he'd been looking forward to. It started at six. On his drive to campus, Lexi called. How was your day, she said. Did Melvin let you get any work done? Mm. Not the best day, but he mostly left me alone. I'm exhausted. I'll, I'll tell you more about it later. Okay, I'm going to stay at my place tonight. Have fun at the alumni thing. 
I'll talk to you tomorrow. Will do. Love you. Yeah, I love you. The event was an effort to raise money for the College of Communications. A few old acquaintances Chuck knew from his reporter days were there. They were former student government people who, while in school, were friendly enemies. However, since graduating and getting involved with the alumni organization, any bad blood had dissipated. Chuck was having a good time. Wine was served. Chuck had a glass. Then he had another. Then another. By the end of the evening, all the young alumni were pleasantly soused. Greg Atari was the Richard Nixon of student body presidents back then while Chuck was at the paper. This guy took his politics extremely serious, extremely serious, Jesus, extremely seriously and had gone on to manage a Republican state senatorial campaign. He told Chuck that he was moving to Washington, D.C. early next year to become a lobbyist for Texas Oil Corp. Taking the fast track, the shilling for Satan, Chuck told him. Come on, Keller, Greg said. We're all going to head over to Barreled Fish for a few. You should come with us. Just don't write anything down for liberty. Christ, I haven't written anything down for liberty in ages. Perfect, then you'll come. I better not, it's late. It's barely past ten. I haven't been home all day. One drink. Chuck looked at his cell phone. There was a text from Lou. God damn it, this condo. Why am I a visitor here? One drink, Chuck said. On the way out, Chuck swiped an open bottle of red wine before the catering people could clean it up. We're going to a bar, Greg said. It's not BYOB. You never know. Chuck did only stay for one drink. He got in his car and he set the wine bottle to rest on top of the cup holder. He pulled his phone out and texted Lou. I have life. He dropped the phone into his lap and started the car. He looked at the phone again and typed another message. I mean, I hate life. Figure it out tomorrow. He took a swig of wine, put the car in reverse and headed to the house. As he pulled into the garage, Wonderwall by Oasis came on the radio. Fucking great song, he said to himself, cranking the radio so the music was slightly distorted from the car speakers vibrating in their door casings. The rear window danced in time to the reverberating sound. Chuck put the car in park and sang along. He hit the garage door remote that was clipped to the visor and the door lowered behind him. Song's almost over. I'll go to bed then, he thought. He sang as loud as he could, emoting with arm gestures and drumming the steering wheel. By the end of the song where the piano comes in, Chuck was beginning to pass out. The radio station cut to commercials. The 900 building of the Days Inn was reserved for guests with pets, well, dogs, cats weren't allowed. Furthest from the casino and front desk, these rooms had a grand view of a larger-than-average parking area and a white brick wall. The lighting was generally suspect back there, and this was where the serious crimes occurred. 
The selling of illegal meat had long ago given way to the exchange of drugs, and whenever someone off the Tropicana was looking to evade the police, this is where they parked. If the truck parking area was reserved for prostitutes, the 900 building was the domain of petty crime and complete unhinged lunacy. Security to MOD, we have a black male trying to break the window of room 916 with a fire extinguisher. Security to MOD, we have a white male threatening two women on the east side of 900. Security to MOD, we have a white male and a black male in an altercation involving a snake and a machete. Can you, can you repeat that? Did you say a snake and a machete? Copy that, room 1928. Sure enough, as I turn the corner toward room 928, I can hear the bellowing of drunk men and see the shirtless black dude standing just outside the room brandishing a machete. I'll kill you, motherfucker. Back up. Back the fuck up. The other guy had a five-foot snake. He was holding its head like a weapon aimed at the machete. The security officer, Eric, was standing about 10 feet away, looking stunned and confused. Man, I, I don't get paid enough for this shit, he muttered under his breath. Who does? Did you call 911? Huh, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> I decided to see if I can defuse the scene. Gentlemen, hey guys, how about we put those, the machete and the snake away? and we figure out what the problem is before the cops get here. Machete doesn't even turn my way. He is rightly fixated on the head of the snake. This motherfucker has my stuff and he won't let me get it. Fucking snake bites me and I'm cutting his fucking head off. Snake guy moves out of the room toward the machete. Fuck you, you want your shit? You give me my money first. The snake does not appear happy and the body is twisting around, making it difficult for him to maintain his grip. Eric sees this and sidesteps about 20 feet away while explaining the situation to the police. I don't know what kind of snake it is. I mean, what difference does it make, guys? I keep my voice calm, despite the fact that snakes scare the living shit out of me. Seriously, the police are on their way, and I'm pretty sure you don't want to be still standing like this when they arrive. Sir, do you have a cage or something for that snake? Fuck that. I'm keeping him right here until you take that fucking sword away from him. It's a fucking machete, asshole. What the fuck ever? This brilliant discourse continues like this until the LVPD pulls around the corner and gives a blare on the siren. Machete turns, throws the machete into the parking lot, and runs a second police vehicle, pulls around the corner, and gives chase. The Improbable Dangers of Candle Wax by Don Paul. He could hardly make himself say it. He sat on the couch. She was just sitting there laughing about a dumb YouTube video and the sound of her hoarse giggle was like music. Lit up a cigarette. She hated those things, but he needed them right now, and stared hard at her shoes on the floor. No shoes. I'm sorry, but her feet won't be filling you again. I don't know what happens to women's shoes when they are cast off, but that's your future because she's dead. 
The statement was sadly mundane. It didn't feel like the words hung there in the air like in a story. He said them. No one was here to hear them. The truth was simple and as obvious as stating the sun shines or I need a haircut. Her death was like something from an Edward Gorey cartoon or a John Irving novel. She loved her candles. She liked how they made the apartment smell nice, the small glows when she turned out the lights and sat quietly with her nightly glass of Merlot. He had half-heartedly warned her that having almost a dozen candles lit in a one-bedroom apartment might be excessive, but she loved them, and he loved her, so it was an indulgence he accepted. He should have seen it coming. What made her death so odd because dying in a fire is fairly common, and a fire starting when too many candles burn as the lighter of said candles falls drunkenly asleep, was that nothing else in the place caught fire. There was a scorch mark on the green lazy boy chair where she caught fire. There was the smell, a mixture of charcoal flesh and vanilla sandalwood. The only thing in her apartment that burned was her. When he came home, he didn't even notice her body until after he'd headed from the door to the bedroom and pulled off his shoes. He came back and exclaimed, holy shit, what's that smell? And then saw what looked like a melted mannequin. The coroner offered the only explanation she could muster. His wife had perhaps grabbed the candle jar thinking it was her wine and accidentally doused her face and chest with melted wax. And that caught her on fire? I don't know, but it's the only guesstimate I have. Guesstimate? Who actually uses that word? The police detectives had investigated the possibility that he had killed his own wife. He was cleared. There was no indication that her death was intentional or self-inflicted. No one surrounding her case had really any idea how it had happened, just that it had, and they were very sorry for his loss. The funeral was populated by the same confusion. Her parents didn't understand. His parents showed up smelling of Jim Beam and disillusionment. Her brother didn't speak a single word. As her spouse, he was asked to say a few words, but all he could whisper was that he was sorry. This all occurred in the span of five days, and now all the voicemails and texts to check in on him had dried up, and he was alone in the apartment staring at the scorched chair, the caricatures of the two of them drawn by her brother on the wall, and her shoes. She's dead. And then he passed out. Wake up, Goofy. Huh? Am I dreaming? That sounds like... There she was, standing there. She was alive. She wasn't melted. She was holding onto her shoes, her bare feet sliding across the Persian rug her grandfather used to own. You're... You're dead? What? I sure don't feel dead. Anyway, I'm taking these. Is that okay? You don't need these shoes, right? Want some coffee? Like the shot of Martin Balsam falling down the stairs backwards from Psycho, the room had a sudden queasy feel about it. He couldn't quite stand up because his legs had become inert stumps that he could see but not operate. She looked like her, 
She moved like her. She laughed like her. She smelled like her. His wife was somehow standing in the kitchen pouring non-dairy creamer in his Las Vegas mug, the one she bought him when they first arrived to live here. Are you my wife? He asked in an almost inaudible croak. She giggled. No, silly. I'm just here to grab a few things and get out of your hair. Is it okay if I take this saucepan? I really love this saucepan. What the fuck is happening? He forced himself to stand. He slapped himself twice, hard. He stumbled into the kitchen and leaned himself up against the fridge. You're not my wife? Of course not. She's dead. You said so, so it has to be true. Like I say, just here to gather up some things and I'll leave you alone. I think grieving is best done alone, don't you? She wandered past him and he could smell his wife's shampoo in her hair. His knees buckled and he deflated like a Tijuana breast implant. <laughs> From the floor, he could hear her humming, just like his wife used to. From the bedroom, she called out, Can I take the quilt her mother made for you guys, or do you want it? I want the quilt. Her head popped around the doorframe. What did you say? I want the quilt. Huh, really? All right, I guess I can't have everything I want. For the following two hours, he watched this creature who was and was not his deceased wife pack up things in boxes, <laughs> making the same sort of terrible dad jokes his wife loved, and commenting on items she either wanted or thought should stay with him. She washed her hands at the kitchen sink. Well, buddy boy, I think I have everything I can carry. I will now, and she performed a little curtsy, bid you farewell. As the door shut behind her, he began sobbing with such violence that it felt like he dislocated one of his ribs. She left the shoes. All right, I know you didn't want any preambles, but I gotta tell you, uh, this story that I'm about to read is from Casino at the End of the World, and I read one of the earlier drafts of it uh, a couple years ago, and uh, this story still sticks with me. So, you were, I don't know how you chose who was reading what, but we didn't talk about it beforehand. I chose it on purpose. So, I'm glad to be reading this story. Jim, by Donna Hall. <laughs> Excuse me, I can't allow you to do that on the casino floor. He was an older cat, bushy gray mustache, ball cap holding in wisps of gray hair, thin. He was uh, foraging through a trash can ashtray for butts. He was immediately embarrassed. Oh, oh, sorry, just uh, needed a smoke. I get it, but you can't do that here. For more than any other reason, then it's kind of undignified, right? He went over to a slot machine, one of the older ones with less of the flashy lights and video game music, and played for a while. Half an hour later, I caught him trying to bum squares from other players. Dude, I can't let you do that either. His name was Jim. He was 63 years old, but going on 75. He had been a truck driver for years, traveling back and forth across the country, hauling everything from frozen chicken to automobile parts. It turned out that he was pretty successful financially until he was in a head-on collision with a drunk woman. She was fine. He spent the next six months in traction, 
broken collarbone, both legs shattered, neck snapped. Once he was released, his medical insurance ran out and the settlement he was counting on was wrapped up in litigation. He could no longer work. Jim had a million stories, but despite the unlucky cards he'd been dealt, he never positioned himself as a victim. He had a room at the Siegel Suites across the street, lived on a disability check, and once a week came into the casino to play his promotional free play to see if he could score a free pack of cigarettes. I liked Jim. He was an amiable veteran and with a hard luck story and wasn't hurting anyone in his struggle through modern Vegas life. He smoked red L&M Longs, so I bought a pack, put it in a sports book, and whenever I saw him on the floor, I grabbed a single stick, handed it to him and declared, here's your lucky smoke, my friend. He loved it. He would tell me that the lucky smoke was indeed lucky and that he more often than not turned this $5 of free slot play into a comp pack. He started only coming in when, I, when he knew I was on shift. The holdup for Jim's settlement was between the hospital and the Veterans Association. Seems that Jim, was, Jim chose the wrong hospital and the negotiations of ridiculously overpriced health care were stagnating his payout. He didn't drink except for the occasional cherry coke he asked for if he was playing with his own money rather than the casino's double-edged gift of free slot play. When are they going to do another Monopoly game? He'd ask at least three times during a typical visit. The Monopoly game was a third-party free game for players which anyone with a player's card could play three times a day during the promotion. A huge tally board was displayed and at the end of it, the highest scores received $500 in free slot play, and in it, Jim saw a ray of light. The first round included all players. The second round, some two months later, was reserved for only the top two tiers, among which Jim was not. It chapped his ass that he was shut out and was anxious to try again. I shrugged, sorry, bub, but as soon as I know when, you'll know when. They just rig it in favor of the big players. They don't care about the rest of us at all. Tell your bosses, they need to do more to keep those of us down here coming. I didn't bother to point out that he and so many others kept coming anyway. They wouldn't exactly fit in on the strip. Gotta get your fix somewhere. A place familiar is like a blanket. Even a stinky blanket with cigarette burns and a stain that could be blood or Kool-Aid is better than no blanket at all. About once a week, I try to go to the strip and stroll around and see the grand escape provided. I don't gamble. I've seen how it takes hold of people like me, people with addictive compulsion. I know better. I do, however, love to soak in the neon and the dusty glamour of it all. I prefer Fremont Street, as those were casinos before I was born and somehow represent a more romantic, more violent, and more cinematic version of this place. I once read an article about a castle in Europe where alcoholics could pay a fee and drink themselves to death. At the time, I was fascinated and just a bit horrified by the idea. I dubbed it Castle Kevorkian, a place of extreme pain being guided to some sort of closure through sin. There is an odd Venn diagram of virtue and sin in life and finding that midpoint in between, that, that place of kindness despite the depravity of humanity, of compassion without judgment, is a lifelong goal. The law enforcement officer charged with evicting the poor from the homes, the insurance salesman who knows that the purchaser will probably go bankrupt regardless, 
the advertising executive who creates campaigns to sell fat-laden, chemically-soaked snacks to kids. How do any of us live with ourselves? I've experienced a bit of tug-of-war having come from a public radio day job to the casino. My work is a constant balance between enabling those who are hell-bent on self-destruction and treating them like humans with some sort of compassion. I'm known as the nice manager. But the people I work with make it a point to tell me the place and the guests will change all that in time. It isn't easy, and I wonder how long I can sustain it before it starts to stain my soul. The last time I saw Jim was in the early winter. He came in, I grabbed him a lucky smoke, and we spoke about his settlement. He seemed to think the windfall was coming, and he promised to buy me a carton of cigarettes once he received his bounty. He confessed that he'd been living on about $100 a week since 2017. So the idea of actually having some dough was exciting in the same way that winning a jackpot held him. A week later, one of the other regulars asked me if I heard that Jim had died, alone in his room across the street. No one knew how long he'd been dead before they found him. This guy tells me Jim had received his check. It was for $5,000 a number falling far, far short of expectations or need. His passing makes me sad, not because he's gone, but because his last few years were so dismal. The night I found out, I took one of his lucky smokes and lit it up in the parking lot. It didn't feel so lucky, but he believed. Maybe that's all that matters. That one made me. That one made me cry. Sorry, it's just. It's true. His name was actually Ken. Oh. God fucking damn it, man! You lazy ass motherfucker. Two ply uh, doesn't mean both sides. It does. It does. Anyway, thank you. That's a callback. Yeah. Well, Double thick. Anyway, so, yeah, it's <laughs> thank you for coming out. Listen, Jane, I'm just telling you. That just that was the inspiration for the bear, the Charmin bears wiping their ass on the... That's big. That's just half-ass. That's what it is. Anyway, thank you for coming out. I hope you enjoyed yourself. We have books for sale. Let's give it up for Bodie. Heather Bodie. Zola. Zola. Jane. Joe James. I gotta tell you, it's really, it, it, I have to say, because it's, it's one thing to write something, but to hear really talented readers that are not you uh, read your words is really fucking cool. So thank you. I mean, it's, really, it's really cool. Yeah, fuck you. I, I, you. <laughs> you can listen to the Literate Ape cast on literateape.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you go to get that delicious podcast experience. If you enjoy the dulcet sounds of two white guys babbling about whatever comes into their stunted brains, leave us a review anywhere that, you know, reviews are left. And share it with someone whom which you have a dubious relationship. For information about Literate Ape, go to literateape.com, of course, and check out the rest of our podcasts and our years of scribbling. Music on the Apecast is courtesy of Mike Finopel and Local Motive. You can find them all over Chicago 
and online at locomotiveband.com. Yeah,